Um, we're looking at the book that changed the world, that began a revolution that changed the world. Did you know that the Bible is a collection of 66 books written by over 40 different authors from a variety of different backgrounds? There were farmers, there were shepherds, there were fishermen, there were prophets, there were priests, there were kings. Did you know that it's translated now into over 2,000 languages? It's great that we have so many international people here today from Africa and Korea and India and China and Brazil and Dudley and all kinds of amazing far-flung places. There are over a thousand chapters in the Bible. There are 31,000 verses, 780,000 words and three and a half million letters approximately. The longest verse in the Bible is Esther chapter 8 verse 9 which you're all going to be looking at now to test me. Do you know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? It's not Jesus wept. Technically, Job 3 verse 2 is he said, which is like six letters as opposed to whatever. But I'll give you Jesus wept, okay, if you want to say that one. uh, There was one book in the Bible that never mentions God. Do you know what that is? Book of Esther. There are two men in the Bible who never died. One instance, God even spoke through an ass. And he still does, doesn't he? (laughs) The Bible... (laughs) The Bible is still the best-selling book in the entire world. In the entire world. Did you know, however, 27% of churchgoers say they read the Bible at least once a week outside of Sunday. Young people in their 20s are more likely to read the Bible than any other age group, which is interesting. More women read the Bible than men. 92% of young people say they got a great buzz when they could teach the Bible to someone else. And 76% of them say they'd like more time to study the Bible. Did you know that history is littered with famous people who, who made incredible quotes and statements about the Bible? Let me give you a few. George Washington, first president of the United States, said, It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Napoleon The Bible is no mere book, but a living creature with a power that conquers all that oppose it. Charles Dickens, our great uh, writer, author, said the New Testament is the very best book that ever was or ever will be known in the world. William Gladstone, a Prime Minister of England, said, I have known 95 of the world's greatest men in my time, and of those, 87 were followers of the Bible. Mark Twain, I love this quote. Most people are bothered by those passages of Scripture they do not understand. But the passages that bother me the most are those I do understand. And then Victor Hugo, French novelist, writer, said, England has two books, the Bible and Shakespeare. England made Shakespeare, but the Bible made England. The Bible is an amazing book. It's a revolution that changed the world. But did you know that lots of people have lots of questions about the Bible? People who are not Christians have lots, but people who are Christians also have lots of questions about the Bible. And we're going to explore some of those questions this morning. Now, it could be that this could be very dry and very academic. So what I thought we'd do is we'd kind of split it into two halves. So first, we're going to enter the classroom. And when I was at school, all the teachers wore jackets. They all looked 120. These days, they all look 14. Have you noticed that? <laughs> and all of them, or certainly the guide teachers that I had, all had little glasses like that. But they kind of perched on the end of their nose and they all went like that. But I can't see through that. 
And whenever you're going to do a classroom, you need to have some really good source material. So I hope you've got your Bible, but I believe that none of you have got a Bible as big as that. Isn't that an awesome Bible? If you want to have a look at that afterwards, you can. We found it in the dungeons of this building just this week. It is a King James Bible. It is falling to pieces. There's no year on it. It's got some commentary from Matthew Henry, which if you know who he is, like a legend. Uh, And it's got some amazing pictures and photographs in there as well. It's an incredible book. We'd love to get that fixed. But we're going to leave that there so you can see that. That is an King James Bible. I don't know how old it is, but it is amazing. So we're going to look at some of the questions that people have about the Bible. And I've grouped it into four main areas, okay? And this is a bit academic and a bit kind of technical, so stick with me. We don't talk about this very often, but it's important information for us to think about. The first one is around the area of composition. How do we know that the books that made it into here are the books that God intended? It's the Greek word canon, where we get canonicity from. And canon, the word canon means a rule or a measurement. Now, basically, the Old Testament, there's not much controversy about that. But when you come into the in-between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Apocrypha, you may have, anyone heard of the Apocrypha? Some of you will have heard of it, some of you won't. It's a collection of books that some people think should be in, and we don't. Okay, lots of people don't. And then there's the Gnostic Gospels. Anyone seen the Da Vinci Code, that film? Gnostic Gospels. There's a whole load of other books that people thought, should they be, be in or not? And what happened is in the early church, loads of the early church leaders got together at various councils and devised a method of assessing which book should get in and which shouldn't. It wasn't just, you know, like pluck it out the air or lucky dip. It wasn't that. There were measurements like, did the book indicate God was speaking through the writer? Was it authoritative? Was the writer recognized as a spokesman of God? Was the book historically accurate? Was it consistent with other teachings of Scripture? And if you do read the Apocrypha, which I have, you will see that it's very different from lots of the New Testament. It just really is. And these church fathers, under the inspiration of God, gave us the canon, what we call the canon of Scripture. They didn't create the canon, they recognized it. It's a little bit like Isaac Newton didn't create the law of gravity, he recognized it. It was there, but somebody needed to frame it. So the second area of questions is about reliability. Can we trust the Bible when it was written by human hand? So many translations which see and some seemingly apparent contradictions. And just to pause in this, I thought, you know, <laughs> you know when, when kids tell about the Bible, they can just change things ever so slightly, which kind of makes it kind of lose the meaning. So here's some things that people, that kids have said about the Bible. And hopefully you won't think that these are true. God got tired of creating the world, so he took the Sabbath off. Wasn't exactly how it happened. Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree. Noah's wife was called Joan of Arc. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day, but a ball of fire by night. Samson was a strong man who let himself be led astray by a Jezebel like Delilah. Samson slayed the Philistines with the axe of the apostles. (laughs) Moses led the Hebrews to the Red Sea where they made unleavened bread made without any ingredients which is really miraculous the Egyptians were all drowned in the desert afterwards Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments the first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple the fifth commandment is to humour thy father and mother (laughs) which I think a lot of kids do take literally don't they to be honest And the seventh commandment commandment is thou shalt not admit adultery. Slightly different. (laughs) Moses died before he ever reached Canada. 
The greatest miracle in the Bible is when Joshua told his son to stand still and he obeyed him. <laughs> David fought the Finkelsteins, a race of people who lived in biblical times. And his son Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> Jesus enunciated the golden rule which says to do one to others before they do one to you. That's not the Bible, all right? Just some of you that are writing that down, so that sounded good, I'll do one. The people who followed the Lord were called the 12 decibels, and the epistles were the wives of the apostles. And one of the opossums was St. Matthew, who by profession was a taxi man. St. Paul cavorted to Christianity. He preached holy acrimony, which is another name for marriage. And a Christian should have one wife. This is called monotony. <laughs> So we can get it slightly wrong. And of course the question is, we can get it slightly wrong. So have they got it slightly wrong? All those different authors, all those different translations. Has it come down to us thousands of years later and we can't trust it? 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 is a really important scripture. Some of you may not be Christians this morning. You may think, what on earth is he on about? One of the big objections to the Christian faith is what I'm talking about. That many people think that this book is outdated, irrelevant and not true. I'm here to declare to you this morning that that is not true. This book is the Word of God. And we can trust in it and depend on it. And 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. Say God-breathed with me this morning. God-breathed. That means it was inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking and training in righteousness. Now, is it infallible? That's a big word that means misleading. I don't think it is misleading. I believe that when you look at the Bible in its entirety, now when you pick a few scriptures out and look at one scripture on its own, you can get the wrong end of the stick. You need to look at it in the consistency of the Bible. Is it inerrant? In other words, is there an absence of error? Again, you need to look at the whole Bible. When the Bible teaches about doctrine and the pattern of living, when it records actual history, it speaks the truth. But it may be that there was never such a person as the prodigal son. Maybe that. And Jesus told a story. That's fine. Jesus is telling a story to illustrate spiritual principle. And when we focus on one thing, we can be misguided. There are some seeming contradictions in the Bible is a result of different people viewing the same event. When you read the Gospels and you read some of the stories of Jesus, you read it in Matthew or Mark or Luke and John, it appears slightly differently. Listen, if 10 of us watched the same event, we would report it slightly differently. It doesn't contradict. It actually complements giving you a broader perspective of what actually was happening. Some things are just haven't been discovered yet. Do you know that? For centuries, scholars believed that the Bible was wrong in the Old Testament because it talked about the tribe of the Hittites. And there's no record historically of the Hittites until they discovered it a few tens of years ago. They actually did exist. We just hadn't discovered it then. Is it originally given? What about all these translations that have come? You know, I believe that God watches over his word. I believe that. And yes, the Geneva Bible and the Bishop's Bible that were around in the, up until the, the, the early 17th century when King James came on the scene, there were some errors in that. And there may be some words and some translations some translation of words that, that are, are debatable, etc. But when you look at the Bible in its bigger picture and you look at it in its context, we can trust that this is the God-inspired word of God. And you know, I think, now this is a quote from someone else, I agree. Men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. They often reject it because it contradicts them. 
And often I know as a believer, we say we live by the word of God, but how many of you have ever read something and you've thought, oh, that must be a contradiction? Or that, or that must not have been what they really meant, because it just is too painful to face it and say, God, it's your word, let it apply to my life. Third area is understanding. How are we supposed to understand or make sense of this book? It's so ancient, it's so old, it's so weird at times. It's, it seems inconsistent, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Let me say a few things. Number one, Scripture must be interpreted literally. Now, to be literal is not the same as to be literalistic. I know it seems like splitting hairs. To be literalistic is a wooden approach to understanding words and context and meaning. Let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, in 2 Chronicles 6.19, the Bible says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Many of you will have heard that scripture. What it means is that God is looking out for people who are committed to him so he can strengthen them. It does not mean that there are a pair of celestial real eyes watching us. It doesn't mean that. It's imagery, it's allegory, it's, but it's true, but it's not literalistic. It's literal without being literalistic. A literal approach requires we interpret scripture according to the original meaning. What did it mean when it was written? What did it say? According to the literary form, is it poetry? Is it prose? Is it parables? Is it allegory? See, people look at Revelation and they want to be literalistic about trying to understand everything in there. It was never meant to be like that. It's not how it was written. Scripture must also be interpreted by Scripture. This is called the principle of harmonization. In other words, is that consistent with that? If it's not, then there's something wrong there with our understanding of that. The scripture can be interpreted also by the Holy Spirit. True understanding is that the real understanding of the scripture is not a natural phenomenon. It's a spiritual thing. God reveals it to us. Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, Simon, for this was not revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven. How many of you know that there's a difference between reading the Bible and between God bringing that alive in your heart, isn't there? See, there's truth. And there's knowledge and there's revelation. I've done this before. Truth. How many of you know God is love? That's true. If you don't know it, sorry, don't make a difference whether you know it or not. It's true. God is love. You may not believe it. You may believe it. It's true whether you believe it or not. It's true. Knowledge is when I know that God is love. And I think, wow, I know that. But revelation is when that truth has become so alive in my life and being that I know, that I know, that I know that not only is God his love, but he loves me. And suddenly it comes alive. Are you with me? And so when we read the Bible, we need to read it with our minds, but we need to read it with our spirit and ask the Holy Spirit to bring it alive into our experience. Hebrews 4 verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. I love that. It's living And it's active. Living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. When we read the Bible, folks, it's alive. Do you know that? It is alive and active. And you can read the same passage of Scripture, but if you are open to the Spirit, it's alive and active and you'll find something new. And you'll find something fresh. And an experience in your life where that will become alive and active and it will do something amazing in your experience. What about the Old Testament God and the New Testament God? You know, God 
The Bible is a progressive revelation of who God is in relationship to the world and in relationship to people. Go back to the Old Testament. God is often softening things that were horrendous in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. Child sacrifice. You know, when um, God spoke to Abraham and said, go and take your son Isaac and sacrifice him. We read that and we think, how on earth could God do that? Then I look at it and think, and, and Abraham just got up and did it. Went to do it. No questions asked. Why no questions asked? Because everybody did that in Abraham's time. It was a common practice to try and appease the gods. But when God said, got him up there as that test of faith, then as, as the knife's coming up and he stops and saying, you don't need to do that any longer. I know you love me. You don't need to do that thing any longer. He's softening the practice that was around in history at the time. And you begin to see that practice disappearing. It's the same thing with slavery. Same thing with attitude to women. You look at the trajectory of scripture and God is often softening things that were in culture at the time and taking them to to where we see them in the New Testament and beyond. And that's so, so exciting because the Bible is alive and is active. Fourth question, relevance. How do I apply it to my life? What if I don't read? Where do I start reading this immense book? Can I make a suggestion humbly? Don't start with Leviticus or Revelation. All right? Some of you may be new to faith and you're exploring Christianity. Don't start with Leviticus or Revelation. Start with the Gospels. Start with Matthew, Mark. Mark's a good one, the short Gospel. Very active. Luke, John. Start with one of those Gospels. And you know, if you don't read, there are loads of different resources. We have never had so many resources. Do you know that? Never. And yet the statistics say that we've never read the Bible less than we do as a culture right now in the West, especially. It's not true all around the world, but in the West, statistics say that we have never read the Bible less than we do now. And yet we've got more translations, more CDs, downloads, all kinds of stuff, DVDs. We've got everything, haven't we? It's all on our phone. It's all everywhere. But we read it less than we've read it in previous generations. Let me say a few things to you, and then we're going to switch gears. How do you approach this incredible book? Either on your own, or when you're together, when we're together like this, and someone's preaching. Let me give you a few things. We need to approach it with a sense of reverence. Now, I don't mean that, you know, don't put it on the floor, or that, that some religions do. I don't mean that extreme, but a sense of reverence. This is God's word, isn't it? It's God's word. It's a sense of reverence. There's also a sense of humility. You know, when I come on a Sunday and I'm not preaching, you know, I believe every single person who preaches or reads the Bible, I believe that God can speak to me through that. The minute I don't think that is the minute when my arrogance has got in the way of what God wants to do. And so I don't approach with listening to anyone else with, oh, I've heard this before. They ain't got nothing to say to me. The minute I do that, I'm arrogant and I'm disconnected from the flow of the Spirit. Anybody, anybody can speak the Bible, teach the Bible, and God can give me something if I'm ready. How many of you believe that? It's absolutely true. So when I, when I listen to other people preach, I don't say, oh, I've heard this before. Dan, for oh, goodness sake, I've heard this one hundred times. I say, Dan, I have heard this hundred times before, but God spoke through an ass. So, no, no, I'm only joking. I'm only joking. We're friends. We can do that. You can do that to me next time. So, so basically, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. So basically, forgive, forgive. Uh, <laughs> so any time, any time that you're in a situation like this and the Bible's open and someone's speaking, please, let's put our arrogance down and our pride and say, God, 
You're speaking because this is your word. I don't care who it is that's declaring it, who it is that's reading it. There's going to be something of you in that if I've got ears to hear. Amen? So we approach it with a sense of reverence and humility and expectancy. Now, I don't know how people remember things when they don't write it down. I don't know how that happens. That may be that you can have that amazing, extraordinary, supernatural gift. I haven't got it. So I want to say and encourage you guys, let's bring our Bibles together on a Sunday morning. Let's bring a pen. Let's be ready. Because God's speaking. And when God's speaking, he wants to know that we're listening. And the Bible says, of course, in James chapter 1, doesn't it? Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. How can we do what it says if we don't remember what was said? How can we remember what is said if we never capture it? never write it down if we never find a way of putting it down so we remember what God said through his word you know the only sure sign that me and God are on good terms is my obedience to his commands not my emotion not how great I feel about God not even my service the only sure sign that me and God are on good terms is my obedience to his command Jesus said if you love me you will obey what I command not because you have to but because you want to In your notes, I've given you something that I want to set out as a challenge for us as a church this week. And um, in the the inside of the note page that was given, there's a tool here developed by a guy called Wayne Cadero, who wrote a book called The Divine Mentor, which you may have heard of one or two thousand times from Dan. And this is a, a tool called soap. How many of you use soap or some version of soap every day? See, that was scary. It's like half of you. I mean, I did that at the nine o'clock and there's a third used soap and they all sat together. And like everybody else, you do use soap or some version of soap every day, yeah? Okay, brilliant. You're still not saying, that's quite scary. So it stands for Scripture, Observation, Application and Prayer. And what I've done is I've, I've written five scriptures, one for each day. Now, some of you who are really like, you know, really rebellious and just kind of thing, well, you're just going to whatever, you think, I'm not going to do that because he's a... Look, it's like, why don't we just try and do it? Why don't we get off our high horses and just try and do it together for a week? So tomorrow, find 10, 15 minutes, that's all it will take. Read that scripture first. And then observation means you just write down, you're not going to get much in here, but in your notebook or whatever, write down, what does it say? What does it say? What is that scripture or those few verses? What are they saying? Then application is when you, you've already prayed. You pray and you say, God, as I read this, as I write it down, would you just illuminate it? Would you show me stuff about this for me? Write down what could that mean or what might God be saying to me about that passage of scripture? And then prayer is where you put a prayer down, write something down or pray it out. because you want God to take what he's revealed to you and make it live in your life. Now, if we all do this together tomorrow, okay, it'll start that we'll all be the same like that. We'll read the scripture and we'll write down what it says, observation. Then when it gets to application, it will go like that. Because the word of God is active and living. And so what he says to Matt might be slightly different to what it says to Maud, to Dave, to Helen, to me. Because it will start like that and it will go like that. But isn't that amazing? That God can do that with his word and he can do it because his word is not dead, but his word is alive, active and living. Are we up for that? Could we just try that? Try it for five days. If it doesn't work for you as a tool, then that's absolutely fine. Because it does for some and it doesn't for others. But it may be that you discover something in the process of doing that which makes this Bible come alive to you. You see, Gandhi 
who wouldn't confess to be a Christ follower, although he was very impressed with the character of Christ, he said this, it's coming up on the screens, you Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces, turn the world upside down and bring peace to a battle-torn planet, but you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. Wow, isn't that amazing? You Christians have this amazing book and you treat it as though it's nothing more than a piece of literature. So that's the classroom. I've got to get that jacket off because it's really hot in here. So now we're going to go to the living room. And to kind of do this, I'm going to wander over here and uh, take some of you back to a few years ago. And hopefully some of you will know this song that I'm about to play and sing for you. And if you do, I want you to join with me. And the reason I'm doing this is not just to sing the song or to play, but because this is based on a passage of Scripture or a verse of Scripture, which is really, really important to what we want to say this morning. See, that Scripture that Amy Grant wrote that song about many years ago now, I think it's about 20-odd years ago, 25 years ago, some of you are feeling really old now, that's based on a psalm, Thy Word. Thy Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You see, God... Never wanted us to have this Bible just to be a theological, academic document, but to be something that was alive and active in our lives. 200 and something, 50, 60, 70 years ago, the Americans finally kicked the Brits out of America. Okay, they fell out over tea in some thing or some situation. But they kicked us out and then they wrote their Declaration of Independence that could be summed up with the last phrase that said, Life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And that could be a summation of what a lot of people want. But actually, you could flip it around a little bit and say that God wants us to sign a declaration, not of independence, but of dependence, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness, which is becoming more like God. Or in other words, life, liberty, and light. And as I was praying and preparing for this, God really gave those three key words to me to share with you this morning. You see, the Bible is there so that we can experience life and life in all its fullness. It's there so we can experience liberty that sets us free. And it's there so that we can experience light, so that we can become more and more like Christ. Let's look at those three things together. Life. If you've got a Bible, John 5, verse 39 to 40. And Jesus here is speaking to people who know the Scriptures inside out. Like they know all the big words and they know all the principles. They're really academic. But in John 5, 39, Jesus says, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. So you know so much about the scriptures that you think that because you have so much knowledge, you now possess eternal life. But he says, These are the scriptures that testify about me. See, you study them all, but you don't realize that they're all about me. And then he goes on to say, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So these guys know everything about the scriptures, which all talk about Jesus. But when Jesus is standing right in front of them, they don't come to him and they don't get life. You see, they believed, they believed that religion, right religion, will produce right relationship with God. And I want to declare this morning, that is not the case. Right relationship with God is not defined by how much you know about relationship with God. It's about how much life of God you're engaged with right now. 
You see, I said this on Tuesday night, those of you that were here on the Heaven and Hell session. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, and by the way, rich, young and ruler, how much of our culture do we see in that? Got the three things that we all want more than anything else. Riches, youth and power. When the rich young ruler came up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus starts talking about the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, got, 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 check, 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 check. I do all of that. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, Romans 10.32, then you should call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. He doesn't say you should repent. He doesn't say you should pray the sinner's prayer. What he says is sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. Now notice, he doesn't say that to Zacchaeus. He doesn't say it to anybody else actually in the New Testament. He only says it to this one guy. Why? Because Jesus knows that what is stopping this young guy entering into eternal life now is money. And so he says to him, listen, if you will just get rid of that one thing that's blocking the eternal life of God, which isn't for when you die, but is for now and when you die, if you'd only get rid of the one thing that's blocking the life, the life would flow and you'd know it. And for you, boy, it's money and greed. And the Bible says he went away sad because he was very rich. And what I want to say to you folks this morning is that when we read the Bible, we have to ask ourselves, God, what is it in my life? That is stopping me entering into eternal life. Because we've all got something. And for you it may not be money. So God's not going to say to you, sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. Which some of you are very grateful for. But for some of you it may be something else. It may be, do you know what? That work is killing you. You need to get a different job. That relationship is killing the life of God in you. What you're doing there is killing the life of God in you. And you want life and you want to have all its fullness. It's not going to come when you know more. It's going to come when you stop doing that that stops the life of God flowing into you. Then what about liberty? John 8 verse 32. Jesus says, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. goes on to say in verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you know the problem that I think we have with the truth? is that we all know the truth. The problem is the truth as we perceive it to be. So we all take our versions of the truth and we act and behave in accordance with the truth as we perceive it to be. The problem is, and, and this is why the Bible is in many ways a mirror, because this is the truth, isn't it? Not your truth or my truth or our truth. This is the truth. And if we're open to God, this Bible speaks into us and brings liberty when it reveals the truth in our lives. And the Bible says the truth sets us free. Hmm. Final thing is light. Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I want to share something with you that's really helped me. A guy called Larry Osborne writes a lot of Christian books that I like and read. And um, he wrote about spiritual disciplines. And it was a very interesting book. Called it The Contrarian's Way to Knowing God. And kind of turned everything on its head really. But he said something in there which was brilliant. And he said that he discovered in his relationship with God something called what he calls a dimmer switch principle. You know what a dimmer switch is on the, on the, on the, the lights. And he basically it says this. When we respond to the light we have, God gives us more. When we don't, he takes away the light we already have. It's powerful. Simple but powerful. When we respond to the light we have, it's like God turns the switch up. But when we don't respond, it's like God turns the switch down and we lose some of the light we've already had. 
It's interesting, when you read Romans, and you read the early chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul is talking about culture, a whole culture, and that's almost re- rejected God. And, and, and the way he puts it is it's like God's turning the dimmer switch down, and they lose their sense of righteousness, they lose their conscience, and they spiral down into ever-increasing darkness. Because God has got his hand on the switch, and he says, you know, guys, you're not responding, I'm going to turn it down. And I've seen so many Christians who at once in their life were passionate on fire for God, who came to church ready for anyone or everyone to speak to them, but now they're cross-armed and then nothing can move them at all. And do you know what's so sad about that? Is that it could be that God is turning the switch down. Because we're not responding to the light that we have. And I don't want to be like that, do you? I want to respond to the light that God has given me. And, and you might say, well, on how on earth can you prove that from the Scripture? It's interesting that Proverbs 4 verse 18 says, The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. So as we respond to God's word and God's light, he turns the light up and we get more and more light. You know, the longer we walk in obedience, the clearer the spiritual picture becomes. This means I don't have to worry about all that I don't know. How many of you don't know things about the Bible? And God, you don't have to worry about all you don't know. You have to respond to what you do know. You have to respond to the light you have, and then you will get more light. We don't have to worry about what we don't understand. Spiritual maturity is not about how much you know. It's about how much you put into practice. When it comes to spiritual growth, the amount of light we have at any given time isn't nearly as important as what we're doing with that light and whether God is turning it up or down. I don't know about you this morning, but I want God to turn the light up in my life, don't you? There's so many areas of darkness. There's so many areas where I need his life and where I need his liberty and his freedom. And that's why I'm really glad that this morning, this word of God is active and living. I'm going to ask Mark and Gareth to come back. And Mark's going to sing for you just a very short song. And I love this song. It's beautifully simple. And just the phrase in the chorus says, Word of God speak, would you pour down like rain? What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray in a moment. And then Mark's going to sing. And I'm going to pray that all across this place... Just start playing for me, Gareth. I'm going to pray... That God will speak to you this morning. And there are some of you here this morning and you need life. There's something in your experience which is a barrier to the eternal life of God flowing into you right now. You need life. It's been ages since you've experienced the life of God. I'm not talking about the emotion. I'm talking about the life of God flowing within you. It's been ages. And you need the Word of God to speak to you. Some of you, You know, there's areas where you need the liberty of God. You need that truth that will set you free. And some of you, you need the light. It's dark right now. You don't know what to do. There's areas of your life and you need the light of God to shine. I believe that God will do that because I believe that the Word of God is active and living and He's here by His Spirit. Amen. So I want to pray. Now I'm going to ask you just to listen to the song and just let God by His Spirit speak to you today. Father, we want to thank you for this book that changed the world, started a revolution, and it's not going to be deposed by another revolutionary. This book that started a revolution is going to remain when everything else passes away. 
And we thank you for it, Lord God. We thank you there are countries and nations and rulers that have tried to stamp it out. They've burnt books. They've, they've oppressed people. They've tortured and killed people. But the Word of God is still the best-selling book in the entire world. And Lord, we thank you because it's your Word and it's alive and it's active and it's living. And in these moments, as we listen to this music, God, I pray that we would hear the voice of God, that the voice of God, the Word of God would speak into our lives. Bring life, bring liberty, and bring light, I pray, in Jesus' name. And we stand together, I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond now. So perhaps if we just close our eyes for a moment and... I'm just going to ask that you put yourselves out there this morning. And I'm going to ask if any of you, you know, you know this morning that you need the Word of God to speak one of these things into your life. I'm going to ask you to respond so that then you're putting yourself in the place. And I'm going to pray for you then that this week, God will speak some of that into your life. That as we put ourselves out there and we say, yes, Lord, I need life or I need liberty or light that then we give God an opportunity to speak into our lives. So while we've got our eyes closed, if there's anyone this morning and you say, I need life. I need, God, I need some of that life, that eternal life. Just put your hand up. I want to pray for you this morning. You need some of that life connection. Father, I want to pray for these folks that have got their hands up. Lord Jesus. God, I pray that you'd bring life to them and life in all of its fullness. Lord, if there's anything that is blocking the flow of your life, Lord, I pray that you'd show that to them, that you'd shine your light on that, that you'd speak that, Lord, that they would take that away so that that life can flow as you intend it to. God, just like the rich young ruler, we don't want to walk away looking at you being sad as we walk away. We want to walk towards you. So Lord, would you let life flow into these people? Even this week, I pray, as they look at the Bible, even as they think about it, even as they're not thinking about it, that you just surprise them and you bring the life of God into their lives in Jesus' name. Liberty. Any of you that need, need that touch of liberty from God, something of that freedom, something in your life which is just binding you up right now and you need the Son to set you free. Father, I pray for these people here. Lord Jesus, would you bring the Word of God that brings liberty and freedom. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free, says the book of Galatians. We're not going to be bound by any of this old stuff. We pray that, Lord, sin and disappointment and disillusionment and loss of purpose would not bind us up. God, I pray for a liberty in Jesus' name. And even this week, as these guys and girls read the Word of God, let the Word of God bring liberty to them in Jesus' name. And finally, light. Anyone got some darkness in their life? Can't see the path. Can't see what God's doing. We're confused. Let's just respond to that. Father, we pray that you, your word, your Bible says your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray light for these folks right now in Jesus' name. Lord, there are treasures in darkness and you're in darkness, but it's awesome when the light shines. So God, we pray that the light of God would shine in these lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Father, I pray this morning that every single one of us would fall in love again with you as we fall in love again with your word. It's not your word, it's you and your word. We can't know you properly without your word, but the goal of your word is that we'd know you properly. 
as you know us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would fall in love again with you through the reading and through the living of your amazing, awesome Word of God, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. We're going to finish by singing a a great hymn of triumph, which reminds us of who our foundation is and what our foundation is. And you know, the whole of the Word of God speaks about Christ. Do you know that? You can track it right from Genesis right through to Revelation. It's all the way through there. The sacrifice and the death and the resurrection of Christ. That's our surety. Kingdoms come and go. Football teams come and go. Rulers come and go. But God never goes. He remains. His truth remains. We're going to take our offering as we finish this morning. And let's just declare this great, awesome hymn of triumph to our God who never changes. He is the one yesterday, today, and forever. Amen.